So this particular historic moment with the largest ground war in Europe that we've seen since World War II and the instability in the energy markets has brought back to life for people the idea that we really don't want to be dependent on petroliters for the rest of our lives. We see these cycles every 10 years. So let's make those investments. And oh, by the way, for those of us who care about climate change, this is exactly the right time where we're running out of time to make these investments. So if we're gonna be spending money to build out energy infrastructure, it better be clean energy. The ongoing Russian war in Ukraine has dramatically shifted geopolitics, and with it, the global energy landscape. As nations scramble to wean off of Russian energy, the US has committed to supporting its European allies in their quest for energy security. At the same time, American consumers are confronting the highest rate of inflation in 40 years, paying more at the pump and for their utility bills than ever before, particularly as we enter the height of summer driving season and see temperatures reach record highs. Meeting this demand has led to an increase in domestic U.S. oil and gas production and calls for even greater market expansion. But this shift could have serious implications for the climate. Further investments in oil and gas could lock in those resources, making it harder to transition to a clean energy economy. In this episode of Political Climate, we wrestle with how to walk the fine line between meeting today's immediate energy demands while maintaining lower prices for American consumers and achieving our climate goals. What's the right energy mix when we're dealing with dangerous security threats, supply chain constraints, and severe burdens on household budgets? To what extent can clean energy resources step in? This podcast is produced in partnership with Canary Media and the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm your host, Julia Piper. And this is the first episode in a monthly series we're calling The Arsenal of Clean Energy, strengthening the bonds of clean energy, innovation, and sovereignty. The Arsenal of Clean Energy is made possible by Third Way, a center-left think tank championing modern solutions to the most challenging problems in U.S. policy, including the economy, national security, and climate change. These conversations are inspired by a memo from Third Way's Josh Fried and Ryan Fitzpatrick entitled Making the U.S. the World's Arsenal of Clean Energy, which we'll link to in the show notes. Or you can find that memo at thirdway.org. While this series is focused on clean energy, we start by looking at another set of resources we simply can't ignore, oil and gas. President Biden hit on this issue speaking at the Major Economies Forum on Energy and Climate on June 17th, just a few days ago. In the United States, I'm using every lever available to me to bring down prices for the American people. And our nations are working together to stabilize global energy markets, including coordinating the largest release from the global uh, reserve, from uh, global oil reserves in history. But the critical point is that these actions are part of our, our, our transition to a clean and secure long-term energy future. And the good news is climate security and energy security go hand in hand. To discuss how the expansion of oil and gas aligns with the clean energy future, I'm joined this episode by a truly impressive group of experts. First, you'll hear from Ellen Hughes Cromwick, Senior Resident Fellow for Third Way's Climate and Energy Program. Previously, she was Chief Global Economist at Ford Motor Company and served as Chief Economist at the U.S. Department of Commerce. You'll also hear from Dana Peterson, who is the chief economist and center leader of economy, strategy, and finance at the conference board. 
a nonprofit, nonpartisan business membership and research organization. Dana previously served as global economist at the financial institution City. Her experience also extends to the public sector, having also worked at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C. Finally, you'll hear from Christy Goldfuss, who is the Senior Vice President of Energy and Environment Policy at the Center for American Progress. She is the former Managing Director of the White House Council on Environmental Quality, where she helped develop and implement the Obama administration's marquee environmental and energy policies. I spoke to Ellen, Dana, and Christy earlier this month, just as the Bureau of Labor Statistics released its highly anticipated Consumer Price Index. We also spoke before President Biden called for a three-month federal gas tax holiday in an effort to try and reduce prices at the pump. That decision now rests with Congress. Without further ado, here's the first conversation in the Arsenal of Clean Energy podcast series. Well, thanks so much to our speakers for joining us for this timely conversation. It is truly an honor to be speaking with three leading women in the energy and climate economics and policy spaces. So I want to jump right in here with you, Ellen. We're talking today about fossil fuels in the context of the arsenal of clean energy series because there's a lot of interplay between all the energy resources out there. So to set the scene for us, how has the pandemic and Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine affected the global energy landscape? How does this compare to energy crises of the past? Are we learning anything today from, say, what happened during the OPEC oil crisis of the 1970s? What can you tell us about what this current moment looks like for the energy mix? Thank you, Julia. You know, to just to kick off the discussion, I'd be remiss if I didn't comment on the inflation data that we received this morning. It showed that energy prices have increased nearly 35 percent over the last year. And clearly, energy prices are hurting Americans now. So it's not just in the U.S. We see this globally. But this morning's news was a was a real eye opener. Coming to your question and looking at top-line oil, gasoline, and natural gas markets, we're seeing a shock effect that these price run-ups you know, do, in some sense, look similar to what we saw when we had two oil shocks in the 1970s. Way back then, they did ignite a broad-based inflation run-up, and it took a while for the Fed, the Federal Reserve, our monetary policy authority, to spring into action. And the fact that they waited so long meant that those oil price run-ups, those shocks, really kind of then permeated through the entire economy. So I do think that the 70s did shift a lot of thinking about these very high and not just high, but volatile fossil fuel prices. It spurred a shift to small fuel efficient cars that were made in Japan. And it also led to a lot of innovations around home heating and appliances, a big Uh, movement toward energy efficiency. And as those fossil fuel prices go up, it does make the alternatives more attractive. And and really, that's for, for us, and I think for many, many people out there, you know, clean energy is the alternative. 
So I imagine that there are many entrepreneurs and company teams calculating right now how much more valuable these clean energy alternatives become with oil prices at 120 a barrel. So we talk a lot about the price of oil and gas at the pumps, but we have to also talk about natural gas. We don't use it in our cars, but we do use it to get around 38% of our power in the U.S. So spikes in natural gas or fossil gas prices are already causing utilities to increase their electricity rates. And unlike a car, which some people can avoid using perhaps by working from home or skipping that summer road trip, it's really hard to avoid paying that electricity bill. And we're already seeing that some increased demand over the summer is adding more strain to natural gas markets. And there's actually another piece of news that we'd be remiss to ignore, which is that there was an explosion recently at an LNG facility in Texas. So this fire at Freeport LNG, which is a liquefied natural gas producer in Texas and actually one of the world's biggest suppliers of LNG, that fire has resulted in a three-week closure of that plant, but also then thrown doubt on the ability for the U.S. to support Europe's energy security needs. In March, the U.S. and EU signed a joint task force agreement to reduce Europe's dependence on Russian fossil fuels, of course, in the wake of Russia's attack on Ukraine. So as part of that agreement, the U.S. said it will work with international partners to ensure additional LNG volumes make it to the EU market, targeting 15 billion cubic meters of LNG in 2022 alone and additional volumes after that. But as I mentioned, this explosion at Freeport LNG is causing some concern around whether the U.S. can even deliver on that promise. It will also require broader investments to get there. That's all to say that as we talk about oil, we're also talking about natural gas, which is used, again, for power, but also in industrial processes. It's used for fertilizer. And so this is another place where consumers and industries are feeling the price pinch. And of course, there are implications for energy security as well as the climate. Dialing in on the price piece, Dana, thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to bring you in here to tackle that. What exactly is the effect on consumers that we're seeing from the volatility and the price spikes in oil and gas markets? What does it look like for Americans today? Let me hearken back to this morning's CPI data where we learned that gasoline prices are up 49% from a year ago. And from our own survey of consumers uh, at the conference board, we know that 47% of consumers say that they are driving less in response to higher gasoline prices. And when it comes to home heating, that's also one of the fastest increases in prices that we've seen year on year. And so all of this is really impacting the consumer prices in general for just about everything from food to energy to shelter are rising very aggressively. But certainly the war in Ukraine that's causing disruptions in production of energy as well as shipments around the globe of energy are affecting global energy prices. And that's feeding back to the United States in terms of higher gasoline prices. So, so far, consumers are still driving, but they're actively thinking about driving less. And that's really important as we enter into the summer driving season. Pulling together a couple of threads here, we're seeing high prices. We understand that. I think a lot of people are feeling that. But we're also, if I'm hearing Ellen correctly, can be reminded of events in the past where this drove more innovation and, and draw to the cleaner alternatives because of high prices in the fossil fuel markets. People are driving less. And from a climate perspective, that could be considered a good thing. But of course, we still have these energy security needs I alluded to. We want to support our allies in Europe and here in the U.S. We want to make sure consumers 
are not overpaying for the fuels that they need. Christy, what does that mean to you to try and balance these various needs? To what extent can clean energy help fill the gaps and ease the price pain that we're seeing? To what extent can it support our allies? How do you think about the mix? I think the challenge is really that word balance. How do you figure out what are the options available to ease the pain that consumers are feeling right now? There are very few when it comes to actual production of oil and gas. It's not a light switch. You can't say, okay, we're immediately going to put a bunch of new oil rigs online and that's immediately going to bring down the price. It's a global market. We all know that. So there are very few tools available to the president and really, I mean, the industry itself had to go through the beginning of the pandemic. There was a massive slowdown and crash of costs. So this has been a kind of wild ride for the oil and gas industry in and of itself. But they have a lot on the books right now, 9,000 unused permits to drill on federal lands. There is more capacity, not a ton, already out there that was online before the pandemic that could be more easily brought online, but there isn't quite the impetus from investors to walk away from the, the really high profits that they're seeing right now. So the balance is, yes, we are not going to get off of fossil fuels tomorrow or even in the next five years. So how do lawmakers and decision makers see this moment and figure out the right combination of policy interventions? How do we relieve costs for consumers who do need to drive, for families who obviously are paying way more for their groceries, which are higher as a result of energy costs? So what are the tools available there? How do we take advantage of all the permits and leases and infrastructure that is currently out there for fossil fuel development and make sure that we're not locking in new fossil fuel infrastructure that's going to be around for 15, 20 years that will prolong our basically addiction to fossil fuels? So that very tricky balance of then where, if you're going to be talking about investments that are not going to help solve the problem until the back half of the decade, so five, 10 years out, how do you make sure that those investments in particular are focused on clean energy deployment? And we always go back to, because this conversation is still live in Washington, D.C., that the House passed 300 plus billion in clean energy tax credits that would do a lot to really supercharge the wind and solar industry in the United States that would help support existing nuclear so it could stay online and we would continue to have that clean energy in the United States. So this particular historic moment with the largest ground war in Europe that we've seen since World War II and the instability in the energy markets has brought back to life for people the idea that we really don't want to be dependent on petroliters for the rest of our lives. We see these cycles every 10 years. So let's make those investments. And oh, by the way, for those of us who care about climate change, this is exactly the right time where we're running out of time to make these investments. So if we're going to be spending money to build out energy infrastructure, it better be clean energy. And that's the type of investment we were already thinking of making. And now there's even greater salience as to why, for national security reasons, we need to do that here in the United States. Right. So referring to there, the reconciliation bill that has passed in the House, a version of it, we're waiting on action in the Senate as we record this. 
with indeed lots of clean energy and climate programs in there. Sticking with the fossil fuel point for just a moment, Ellen, let me put the question to you directly. Does the U.S. need to be producing more oil and gas right now to meet some of our energy security needs? And if so, to Christy's point, do we need to just focus on the opportunities that exist today? Or is the need great enough that we need to be thinking about expanding oil and gas into new areas, new wells to support our European allies? To what extent do we have to have that real conversation? I think we do. And I do want to add to Christy's great points about energy security, national security, and also the third leg of the stool, which is competitiveness. We need to be competitive in these clean energy technologies. We will offer through our innovation and investment a lot of opportunity globally for the transition. And that budget reconciliation bill will make a big difference. But coming back to oil and gas for a minute, just in the last year, we've seen a significant increase in oil and petroleum product production here in the U.S. In the first quarter, the U.S. was producing just a little under 11 and a half million barrels a day. And now the Department of Energy projects that that will grow by over 1 million barrels a day to uh, really 12.6 million barrels a day in the first quarter of 2023 and 13 million barrels a day for all of 2023. And for anybody working in the energy industry, those are large numbers. So we are seeing an improvement in terms of oil and gas production. On nat gas, we've seen substantial increases in liquefied natural gas facilities and production and now exports to UK and Europe to help them face the impacts of the Russia product getting cut off there. So we are boosting production and OPEC Plus recently announced uh, 600,000 barrels per day of output for a couple of months this summer. All of this will combine to help alleviate some of the pressure in those fossil energy markets. And frankly, you know, we have to do it. We have to do both. We have to really focus our eye on the tiger of the medium and long-term clean energy transition We're about to embark on that very aggressively, and we can do that. We're going to be competitive. At the same time, we can't sit here and have those transition risks really rack and rack, I should say, the American household budget. So Dana, bringing you in to build on that, what else can the U.S. do to increase production? Are there enough leases available for companies to open up and take advantage of that they already have on the books today to meet some of the goals that we have, easing pressure on consumers? Is there more the government can do? We already know the Biden administration's using the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to help ease the pain. What else could be done from a fossil fuel perspective? Well, what we're hearing from CEOs is that regulation is a huge barrier for them. So there needs to be a balance between just removing all guardrails in terms of protecting the environment, but also allowing enough scope for energy companies to produce. And then there are also tax incentives and taxes on gasoline. And there are lots of these kind of inputs and barriers that governments, state and local governments also, as well as the federal government, can step in and address. 
And I agree with Christy in terms of, you know, we do need to invest. And when you look at the infrastructure bill that was passed last year, there's only five to seven and a half billion dollars set aside for, for example, building out EV stations, right? Currently, there are 145,000 fueling stations. Only 46,000 of them have public EV charging stations, and only 6,000 of those have DC fast charging. So even if we wanted everyone (laughs) to drive an electric vehicle, it's just not possible because you don't have the infrastructure. And that's where the government, maybe this isn't something immediate, but certainly over the next five to 10 years, where the government has a huge role in building out that infrastructure to allow for activity to catch up with the technology. And then just speaking about national security, a big issue is just thinking about the technology that goes into, say, an electric vehicle or a solar panel. A lot of the inputs come from economies that we are not necessarily friendly with. So, for example, if you think about um, an electric battery for a car, 51% of that cost is the cathode. And within it, you have essentially four rare earths, right? Lithium, nickel, cobalt, and magnesium. And China's number three in the world in production of lithium. Russia's number three for nickel. Russia and China are number two and number 10 for cobalt. And China's number six for magnesium. So we have to think about where we're going to gather the components to build the batteries such that we can have electric vehicles, right? So geopolitics are going to factor materially into how the government thinks about helping consumers and businesses get to the point where we can use products and fuels that are cleaner. Right. And I think we're hitting on some of the tensions here of why we even saw, even ahead of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, some calls for increased oil and gas production from even the president himself. Shortly before he attended the COP26 climate summit, he was actually calling on other international players to increase production because of the pressure on consumers, but then went on to support a really strong and ambitious climate agenda. But I think recognizing that we have this acute need now for the supply in oil and gas, but we also need to be investing in the clean energy solutions. On the solution side, I want to bring in another recent event. We are speaking shortly after President Biden signed an executive order that would delay new tariffs on solar products imported from certain Southeast Asian countries. But it would also use the Defense Production Act, the DPA, to build out domestic manufacturing capacity for not only solar products, but also heat pumps for electrolyzers, for hydrogen, other grid technologies, building efficiency, etc., In addition, he would use federal procurement dollars to try and accelerate the domestic manufacturing sector. Relevant to this podcast theme, the White House fact sheet states, quote, Today's clean energy technologies are a critical part of the arsenal we must harness to lower energy costs for families, reduce risks to our power grid, and tackle the urgent crisis of a changing climate. It goes on to say, with a stronger clean energy arsenal, the United States can be an even stronger partner to our allies, especially in the face of Putin's war in Ukraine. What is the significance of that announcement? He's using a wartime measure here, Christy. What does that mean about inserting clean energy into the discussion today? This is just such a dramatic shift. And really, it was when I was in the Obama administration at the Council on Environmental Quality, it was just not even discussed that we would look at something like the Defense Production Act to move forward on building out 
clean energy elements. So this is a pretty significant shift and pretty exciting that the Biden administration is looking at every opportunity they have. Overnight, as a result of Russia's war in Ukraine, the global world order shifted more than I think anyone could have predicted or anticipated. And the unity between the European Union, the United States, and like-minded democracies and other countries is just extraordinary. And the economic impact of that over time should be astounding. And when it comes to those same like-minded countries coming together around a clean energy economy and looking at where all of those resources are, it's going to change the calculation that countries make around their trade agreements, around truly free markets, how we account for carbon in our products. We talk about a carbon border adjustment, but all of this is being rethought with a backdrop of a new world order that really is a set of countries that share not only a view around democracy, but also a view around how to address climate change and others that may not. And that's where I think it opens the door to new policy prescriptions, whether it's the DPA or a national emergency declaration or other authorities that the Department of Defense has or spending and research and development. It changes what the government is able to do and the way they are able to justify actions. And so I think it's really the answer to how are we going to have more manufacturing domestically related to clean energy if it is tied to our national security and looking at a longer time horizon and saying we don't want to be in this situation again, whether it's fossil fuels that are being controlled by dictators elsewhere in the world or we're talking about critical minerals that are being controlled by dictators elsewhere in the world. The problem is the same. And let's get ahead of that as we look for this transition to take place and really think about how do we have those resources here and how can we build them in a way that is safe. I mean, that has always been our challenge around mining. How do we make sure it's safe for communities and not detrimental to the environment? But most believe and expect that the federal government and these industries can do both, that we can develop those resources in a way that's responsible. And we're going to have to because there's really no alternative at this point. Right. Yeah. Getting into the clean energy supply chain, as Dana was talking about, where do these products come from? If we make them at home, how do we do it responsibly, local engagement, et cetera? It's definitely a big challenge. Let's not underplay that in addition to just putting the effort into it. But that is something that the executive order did. It's a whole new lens, as you described, for thinking about energy security. And I think it's the first time the Defense Production Act has been used to charge the energy department with distributing funds versus the defense department. So an interesting new milestone there. Ellen, what do you make of the president's announcement? And specifically, I understand that there's a shortage of funding in the Defense Production Act, which means Congress would still have to likely act if we want to truly build out a domestic solar supply chain, heat pump supply chain, hydrogen supply chain. Those are multi-billion dollar initiatives, not $500 million. And there's other national priorities. So with that in mind, how do you think about the president's announcement? I think the announcement is very favorable, but yes, we do need funding for it, and we need more than just these tools. I mean, frankly, we do need a lot of the funding that was in the Build Back Better Act, and hopefully many of those provisions will appear in a budget reconciliation that can be delivered to the president's desk. It is one 
you know, element among many different tools that we need to deploy. And I, I do want to come back to, you know, some of the earlier work that was done, especially the charging infrastructure that was in the bipartisan infrastructure law. That was actually unveiled yesterday. We have a comment period, but just incredible fast progress in terms of getting that money out as state formula funding to get to 500,000 plugs. Uh, I do think that that's going to make a big difference in terms of EV take rates, that we'll start to see those charging stations. And really, they're talking about such an intelligent way to approach it with a minimum of a 150 kilowatt hour plug. That means that somebody could roll up to that station and really, you know, kind of fill up their battery in about 20 to 40 minutes. So that's going to make a big difference. And I do also want to comment back, you know, remember when President Biden said, hey, we've got to get to 50% EV sales as a market share by 2030. All of that signaling is a policy tool in and of itself. And many of the automakers stood up and took notice and realized that they were going to be embarking on this journey to retool and renovate and build that EV capacity. And just in the last 24 months, we've seen billions of dollars of investment, not just in retooling, but green fields for electric vehicles, as well as battery cell manufacturing, which we need here. So a lot of the approach to clean energy has been strategic and also includes these signals which I think says to the marketplace, you know, which is the larger portion of the investment allocation, it's saying to the marketplace, look, we're going in this direction and it's going to be really, frankly, a very positive development for these companies as well in the domestic production of clean energy technologies. I'd like to bring in more of the European lens for a moment. So we're talking about U.S. initiatives. The Netherlands, for instance, has announced that they are moving off of natural gas-powered heating for homes in light of the Russian conflict in Ukraine. That's because they want to be less reliant on that supply chain. And so they're moving to heat pumps. I think it's by 2026 or 2027. That's just one example. And more broadly, the European Union has committed to reducing its dependence on Russian oil and gas. Dana, what is the implication of that? Will that have other ripple effects for the U.S.? Is that an opportunity for the U.S. to serve the European market? And can we serve it with clean technologies? Or do you think it's really going to be oil and gas that steps in first in response to these European-led efforts to change their energy mix? Well, I think the immediate need is oil and gas. And so we're going to be providing that. Something you mentioned in terms of switching from natural gas heating to heat pumps that brings up the fact that consumers and businesses are going to need help with this transition. So going back to the U.S., there are 5.5 million commercial buildings and 142 million residential buildings. And I'm sure most of them don't have solar panels or heat pumps. Most of them are probably operating on, on fuel oil or natural gas, <laughs> or even in the case of factories, some of them coal. So this transition is going to be very expensive, right? And someone has to pay for it. Who is it going to be? Is it going to be the government providing incentives through tax breaks and subsidies? Or is it going to be on the backs of businesses and consumers? And just getting back to just the thought around 
many car companies deciding they're going to build EVs, that's great. But the problem is that they're expensive. And when you think about who owns electric vehicles, 43% of the population make more than $150,000, right? And then another 26% make between $100,000 and $150,000. The median income is closer to $50,000 in the U.S., So that means most people cannot afford an EV, especially when the average EV is $60,000 compared to $46,000 for your average car. And that average, of course, is bringing in the BMWs as well as the Kias and the Toyotas, right? So most people are actually spending less than $46,000 for a car, right? But if your EV is 20 to 30% more expensive, then that's going to be a challenge. So you know, while it's fantastic that other economies are moving in this direction, we can look at in the U.S. what supports they're providing to businesses and consumers in order to make that transition. I want to come back to that in just one moment on the clean energy side. But let me ask you, Dana, on the fossil fuel side, wouldn't investments also be needed to, say, build LNG export terminals or to support increased production on federal lands? And we're also seeing some claims of potential price gouging. That's not substantiated yet. But the idea that oil and gas companies are increasing their margin at this time of high need and high demand. So don't we have the same considerations there as well on the fossil fuel side? On the fossil fuel side, absolutely, there still needs to be investment. And as one of my colleagues mentioned earlier, I think it was Christy, investors got burned back in 2008, 2009 when energy prices rose. And they said, well, we don't want that to happen again. And by the way, currently, the aims of the federal government and the current administration is away from fossil fuel. So why would we invest in those things? Also, why would we invest in these aging oil refineries? Meanwhile, on the ground, like I said, CEOs are saying that tariffs and taxation and regulation are harming them. But also in terms of production itself, there are major shortages in labor and also machinery and equipment. So even if you want to build a new LNG terminal, right, so that you can export energy around the world, you don't have the materials or the people. (laughs) So we have to solve those problems as well. So I think that Yes, I absolutely agree. We do need investment in fossil fuels to get us through the transition, but we're not even capable of doing that because we don't have the proper infrastructure or even the labor with which to do it. It's an energy crunch. Um, Christy, going to the, the cost savings point. So I think a lot of people have pointed to clean energy as potentially being favorable in that regard that that families can save money over time. Some of these products cost more up front, but then you're spending less on your energy bills. Rhodium Group did a study, for instance, that found the average household could save $500 a year in reduced energy costs. Uh, That does include passing certain policies to get there and making these products cheaper. We have to include that there's an assumption around that, but that's where they think we could get. Rewiring America, another organization, has calculated consumers could save up to $2,000 $500 a year if we really had an all-out national mobilization to reduce the cost of these technologies. But we'd have to get from here to there. So how do you think about the consumer impact of the clean energy transition? I mean, I think of it the same way Dana just laid it out. Who is going to carry the burden of this transition? And I think what we've seen in Europe is there's an extraordinary backlash when the cost is passed on to consumers or perceived to be passed on to consumers and companies have to also carry that burden as well, which then gets passed on to consumers. 
that's part of the reason that President Biden really leaned into the role of the federal government in kind of being that bridge investor around these climate investments for clean energy so that that burden isn't passed on to the American people. And I don't think we can lose sight of that, even if this political moment changes. Even Larry Fink in his uh, letter to investors at BlackRock had a clear description in there that this is the role of the government right now. If we are going to get over this transition and move through it without the kind of disturbance and backlash that could come from doing it too quickly or having it be too costly, the federal government has got to make these investments. And that's why I think you see such (laughs) continuity, at least in this conversation, uh, with Ellen and me coming back to the investments in the reconciliation package, because if Congress fails to act in the coming months and we have a divided government moving forward and we lose this moment, it's pretty catastrophic from a climate science perspective from what will be possible and how quickly we can make this transition if we don't have the federal government taking on that role of really kind of doing the maximum amount of investment possible given the scale and scope of the climate challenge. So it is complicated and hard, but that is the purpose. The government is here to help the people and the climate crisis is just bigger than we've ever seen. So how we address this right now seems pretty dire. And then you add in this horrific war in Ukraine, and it's just added a level of complexity that's really created even more turmoil. So when we come back to the consumer, really, we have to see the government here and the role here as insulating the American public from shouldering that burden and shouldering those costs, because I think we probably would agree they won't. And that will cause greater backlash and make it even harder to move forward on clean energy policies. Yeah, everything's so connected because I think what's driving up natural gas prices in part is the fact that we're having an unusually warm summer in some of the southern states, which then increases air conditioning demand, which puts more pressure on these markets. So you see the climate crisis then feeding back into these issues and having ramifications. I do want to just double click for one second, Christy. I know you said we we shouldn't be locking in ourselves to a fossil fuel heavy pathway, but do you think the climate community will have to understand and accept that there will just be an increase in fossil fuels in the near term because we don't have all the clean energy solutions we need and that that will have to be part of the U.S. priority and policy agenda, uh, at least for now? How, how do you wrestle with that? Well, I don't think the climate community is monolithic and certainly the activists Many of them are young, are looking at a future that they think is going to be dramatically different than the one their parents lived through, uh, and they're mad. And I don't think they will accept that we need to lock in a bunch more fossil fuel development right now. That's just the reality. Given all the complexities we're talking about, I understand why we have to make sure that Europeans are safe this winter and we have all these dynamics of a global world order. But climate activists in particular are very, very focused on making sure that we don't increase our fossil fuel production. For those who look at the entire mix and recognize that we need a transition period here, I think we have to get more clear, if we can, about what that time period is, both so the fossil fuel industry can decide whether or not they're going to participate in this transition or just hang on till the bitter end and what that means for workers in the United States and 
how do we really get serious about doing this? Because continuing to kind of kick the can down the road and say, oh, well, we can't do it now. We can't do it now. We can't do it now. We're never going to get there. So it's almost too rational an answer for the political moment we're in to say that we have to look into the future this far and really get a sense of what is that time frame that we think we can plan for some kind of rational transition in our energy mix. Um, we are supporting the fossil fuels that we need now and making sure we're keeping consumers' costs low, but investing in the clean energy future. And at some point, these two streams cross and clean energy can provide more of what we need given the climate crisis. I, I just, I think it's hard to see that far down the path, but that's what we need to do. Yeah. I mean, it has real political implications today with, you know, Senator Manchin saying things like we need to be using the Defense Production Act to increase fossil fuel production. At the same time, President Biden, as we discussed, is using it to try and increase clean energy production. And of course, the views of those two particular uh, people will affect what happens with the reconciliation bill we've been talking about and broader agreement among Democrats on how to move forward. So we just covered a lot there, Ellen. So I'd love to give you a chance to respond to some of the things that Christy and Dana just said. Yeah, I do want to come back to the electric vehicles. I think uh, Dana made some great points there. I do know from working at an automotive company that typically as they start with a new technology, you know, the products tend to be higher priced, but as they increase volume and they get to scale, they're able to make sure that those vehicles are way more affordable. And when I look at the product plan, for the companies here in the U.S., they are absolutely looking at products that will be much more affordable and attractive for middle America, for moderate income households. And to get the industry, the EV industry off the ground, we will start to see the volume grow and then we'll see a used EV markets start to grow. This takes a little bit of time, but even Ford Motor Company is producing a forty dollars to $50,000 electric pickup truck with bi-directional power. So there are some good developments there. I guess I just want to stand back. I, I might be a little more positive about the latest developments uh, than maybe what we've heard it is quite encouraging to see a lot of these emerging technologies get to a point where we're able to see some demonstrations. I mean, across the board, we've seen growth in direct air capture. We've seen growth in carbon capture and storage technologies, low carbon and zero carbon hydrogen and long duration energy storage so that we can have a way to capture renewable energy and store it for a period of time to use on the grid. So I guess I'm a little more encouraged on uh, you know, what the outlook looks like. I think that recently there was a leading climate finance expert uh, that we invited for a conference panel. And his research was showing that about 40% of the $140 trillion of financial assets under management are investments in companies that are disclosing decarbonization targets. I don't think a lot of people know how much the capital markets have started to move and recognize that that's where the big opportunity is. So I think that's a big mover. The administration, I think, has been right on the, the tack that we have to do both 
You know, we have to make sure we have affordable energy in the transition, but really support the investment in clean energy technologies. I mean, that's happening. And I guess I'm a little more optimistic about uh, the near term future on that. So let me ask about the politics. You know, we're talking about a lot of market dynamics here, but there's also an election coming up and whether or not the president can actually control all these international markets for energy. He will nonetheless bear some of the blame for what consumers are seeing and feeling you know, at the pump today and on their electricity bills. So, Ellen, how do you think this is going to play out politically for President Biden and what can he do to maybe respond to some of the concerns out there? He's sticking to a strategy of the fact that, hey, you know, we are in a transition. We're on a pathway. And it would be, I think, reckless is the right word to move off that path for political, for expediency, for, you know, whatever reason you think may make sense in a quick, hot minute. He's really focused on a strategy that is going to move the country forward to, you know, a clean energy future. And by the way, that will be a more stable future for Americans. For him to derail and do something that might meet the moment, so to speak, I, th- I think, you know, it just is not in his DNA He's really doing the right thing for our long-term future. And isn't that what is more important from a political standpoint to make sure that we have a strategy in place that's going to, you know, eventually get there? And we're always going to have bumps in the road. I mean, as an economist, we've been through so many oil shocks. We've been through exchange rate crises. We've had a lot of volatility And a fair number of those ups and downs have been related to fossil fuels. So I think it's like, you know, everybody is at the point of, you know, this is okay, but let's really do something different this time. And we do have an opportunity to make that difference. So to close out this episode, I'd like to put the central question to to Dana and then Christy to wrap us up here. So first to Dana, how can we walk that line between today's energy demands, maintaining lower prices for American consumers while also meeting our climate targets? When you put it all together, especially with the business lens that you have, what does that look like? I think it's correct that we have to understand that this is a transition period that it's not going to happen overnight, just simply because when we look at the infrastructure of the United States, both physically and in terms of the income strata, you can't just flip a switch and get to the theoretical point, right, where we are green, we're all using clean energy, renewables, etc. And we also can't assume that it's cost-free. There are going to be costs But, you know, there has to be balance, right? And so that balance means that we're going to have a period of time where we're using some of the old stuff, (laughs) right? But also adopting the new things. And importantly, making sure that the transition itself is fair, is just, and reasonable, right? So just thinking about reasonable, many people don't live in the suburbs or they live in apartment buildings where they don't have control over, you know, what kind of fuels are used or whether there's solar panels and those kinds of things, or they can't drive a car that's an EV because there's nowhere to plug it in their apartment building. So I think we have to think about all these things. We have to understand that this is going to be a transition. It's not a comfortable thing to say, but I think it's the truth and it's a reality that we should come around to. 
So Christy, let me put that same question to you. What does that balance, that keyword balance look like going forward? Oh, I wish I weren't the final word. Why don't you let Ellen end with her optimism? Because I don't (laughs) think reasonable and what the science are showing us right now fit. And that's where I think the political challenge is and what we're facing in terms of this transition. What we know, we are going to get a new IPCC report somewhere near the end of the year that is going to be a synthesis of all the science we've seen over the last six years or so. And it's going to show that we are very unlikely to be able to hold warming to 1.5 degrees. We also know that global emissions have to peak by 2025 to do that. We are just not on track to do that. Right now, we are a very divided country and the kind of pull yourself together and everybody face this challenge as a team and really try and figure out how we benefit from this transition, that motivation is just not there right now. So I hope that over the coming years, uh, we're able to get ourselves as a country to a more unified position of what this transition looks like and that we have leaders that recognize exactly what Ellen just said, that this is going to take time and and the transition can happen and there's lots and lots of bright spots. We just need more of them. Ellen, please come in and give the final word here on this central question of our episode of, of how we think about these competing priorities at the same time. Well, I, you know, I guess I do want to end on a positive note because I think a lot of people may not even recognize that We have 21% of our total U.S. energy consumption that comes from diverse renewable fuels. So we're already at 20, 21%. And then there's another 34% that's natural gas that can be mitigated in terms of their adverse impact on the climate through emerging clean technologies like direct air capture or carbon capture and storage. So I guess I'm, I'm a little more optimistic in terms of the fact that the private sector has really understood that this is happening, that there are a lot of breakthrough innovations that are occurring that are going to lead us down that path. No, I totally agree with Christy. 2025 is a very, very challenging watermark. 2030, I think, is looking much better. But we do have a long way to go. And the more that we talk about this and we communicate what is happening and that it's happening too in the private sector, I think the more we can get those messages out about why that's beneficial for American households, the better chance we have of being successful. Well, thank you so much. It's a true honor to speak to all of you on this episode. Thanks very much. And that concludes the first episode in the Arsenal of Clean Energy podcast series presented with support from Third Way. I'm your host, Julia Piper. Thanks so much to our editor, Kyle McDonald, and thanks so much to you for listening. We'll be back soon.